stop there. Now, overview of that text that we just read, because you may have drifted. I understand. The overview of this reading is about a rebellious children and about a gracious God who loves them and desires to be merciful to them if they would just turn away from the things that they're seeking instead of seeking himself. That's it. That, and, he, and he goes into a lot of figurative language here talking about the ways in which he's going to draw his children back to him. Okay? It's a rebellious children, but he's going to draw those children back to him. But it's not going to be like they planned. And a lot of this language is pretty, uh, uh, pretty horrible sounding, actually, isn't it? Uh, as far as what the Lord's going to be doing. Let's look at chapter 31. And like I said, it's a reflection back on chapter 30 and kind of an overview, and that's where we're going to work from today. And we're going to look at three main points from chapter 31. The first is this, the help of God. Let's look just at verse 1. Chapter 31, verse 1, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. That's the problem. That is the big problem for the rebellious children of Israel. So there's a, there's a big issue. We've, we've been covering this ever since the beginning of Isaiah. You remember, there is a great major power called the Assyrians, and they are coming to take the southern kingdom of Israel by force. And they are terrified because the Assyrians are way bigger than them. They're not going to be able to stand if there is a battle. And so the children of Israel, instead of saying, our God has promised life, in fact, we are going to be the generations that give blessing to all nations, so surely we won't be wiped out because God has promised us that. So what is God going to do? Well, in the meantime, while they're scared, they seek out help from a foreign nation rather than seeking out the help of their God. The foreign nation that they seek out help from is Egypt. So they go to the south, and we all know Egypt has these horses and chariots and things, right? And man, do they look impressive, especially to Israel. And they trust in them. Why? It says they rely on their horses and their chariots, and because they are many and their horsemen are strong. It's very tempting in a difficult situation of your life to try to run to something that looks good that could protect you instead of running to your God. God offers us help, but where did they go wrong? Look at two things here. First of all, we need to do unlike they did, and we need to consult God's word of guidance. They didn't do that. In fact, that's why they're being punished, is because they didn't do that. Isaiah 30, verse 2, if you look back there. You set to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. You made an alliance, but not in my spirit. This is not where I would guide you. This is not where I would have you go. They did not seek the Lord in what they were doing. Now, to make an alliance and to get help is not inherently wrong. But to do it without seeking the guidance of the word of the Lord, that is not right. And for this, they're being punished. Again, you can look at uh, verse 9. They are a rebellious people. They are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. If they had just listened to the instruction of the Lord, they wouldn't have made this big mistake. I hope already you're drawing very easy parallels to your life, right? The big problem comes. I run to something else for help and shelter, but I didn't consult the word of the Lord. 
I didn't do something according to his spirit, but I did what looked good and promising. It looked strong. It looked healthy. It looked like it was going to defeat my enemy. And I went and I relied on it. How did that go for you? It didn't deliver you. Again, verse 11, you can see. Verse 12, they despised the word from the Lord. Let us no longer hear about this God of Israel. I don't want to hear churchy stuff anymore, okay? I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about my situation. Just let me take care of it myself. Have you ever been in that place? Enough scripture already, okay? I just stopped throwing scripture in my face. I get on Facebook and I see you posting scripture. You're in that place where I don't want to see it anymore, okay? It's not helping me. It's not, it's not helping you? So... You despise the word of the Lord and you say, Let me know, I don't want to hear about this God of Israel anymore. I don't, I don't want to hear about it anymore. That's what you're doing. Rebellious children rebel. That's what they do. And that's who we are. We are, we are prone to rebel against God and despise his word. We need to be mindful of that. This is the reason this is here for us, is to take an example from what the rebellious children of Israel did and say, but we won't do that. We will not despise the word of God. We will not say, Enough of this, God of Israel. Let's just look to another solution. The solution is outside of God somewhere. Let's go find it. Remember Psalm 119, 105, the word of your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know that one? You heard it as a kid. Is it really a light to your path? Does it really guide your steps throughout life? Does it really? I hope that it does. Remember also 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Seek the word of the Lord in your circumstances. God has chosen to speak to us through his word. You need God's direction Go to his word. Seek out the Lord. Look to what he's said. Pray for understanding and wisdom. Don't be like those who despise the word of the Lord in, in uh, situations. Here's the other thing, though. We need to trust God's hand of protection. They sought shelter in the shadow of Egypt in verse 2, chapter 30, verse 2. They sought shelter in the shadow of Egypt. They trusted in oppression and perverseness, and they relied upon them, verse 12. Chapter 30, verse 7, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. I told you we were going to return to that part. They, so God is calling Egypt Rahab. Now, don't think of the story of Rahab, okay? Different, different meaning here, different context. This is actually a reference to, believe it or not, uh, we are not going to go into the details of this, but it is a reference to uh, Leviathan, the big chaos monster that's presented in, in Canaanite mythology. So he's saying, I'm referencing Egypt back to that big, the chaos monster, by the way, is it, in, in Canaanite mythology, it was the thing that caused chaos and disorder in the world, right? So we need a great slayer to come and kill the chaos monster so that earth might be put right. That, that's the idea. So there's a reference to, hey, you know that big thing you used to believe in, that there was a big chaos monster? Well, that's, that's really what Egypt is in this situation. But notice what the monster does. Sits still. 
In other words, this big chaos monster does nothing. It can't move. So it looks really threatening and terrible, but that's all it can do. It's like my dog, right? It's big. It's got big teeth, right? He can bark real deep, but he, he can't hurt anything. Uh, he goes outside and licks snakes for fun. That's what he does. Uh, that's, uh, he, he hears a sound when we're not home, and he, he goes in the shadows, and he sits and he waits, right? Uh, he looks scary, but in reality, he can't do anything. Now, that is what God is saying about Egypt. They look like they can really do some damage to your enemies, but believe me, they, they can do nothing. They are nothing. You, you trust in that. So that's the imagery there. Remember also Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge in, until the storms of destruction pass by. And we understand the, the idea of wings here, right? It's like uh, we, had, we had chickens not too long ago, and these chickens, the mom would take the eggs and pull them up under and sit on them. Now, when they, when they hatched, they would take the chicks and they'd open their wings up, and the chicks would hide underneath their wings as a shelter. That is the idea that God is saying. Where have you taken shelter, rebellious children? Under the wings of Egypt. They're not your mother. They're not your protector. Seek shelter under my wings. I am your protector. I am your shelter. I am your, where your trust should be placed. And so we think about the help of God. How does he, how does he help us? Well, to seek the help of God, we consult His Word of guidance. We have to. We have to consult the Word of God. We have to trust His hand of protection. The only problem is the hand of God is many times invisible to the eye. But isn't that where faith comes in? If everything in our life was visible and tangible, then where would be the need for faith? Trust in the Lord. Trust in His hand of protection. Let's look next at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 say, and again, this is chapter 31. It says, and yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words. Now, this is in reference to God. Okay, he is, he is wise, he brings disaster, he does not call back his words. He will rise against the house of evildoers and against their helpers and those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who has helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Okay, second thing I want to look at is the fear of God. We looked at the help of God. Let's look next at the fear of God. And the thing we have to understand about the fear of God is this. We have to acknowledge God's sovereign hand. Okay, we have God's hand of protection. We have to trust in it. But we have to acknowledge also God's sovereign hand. And here's what I mean by that. God says they are, that is the Egyptians and their great horses, that they are uh, man, not God, and they are horses, not spirit. And he says, so what's greater, uh, God or man? Well, that's an easy one, God. Okay, what's greater, horses or spirit? Well, spirit, I guess. Well, the things you're trusting in are neither. Trust in me. I am God. I am spirit. Trust in me. Well, why? What's the idea? Because God is a sovereign hand. Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's a God worth trusting in, don't you say? 
the one who can say to anything in the heavens and anything on earth, and he can move his hand, and there is none who can take his hand and pull it away. No one can do that, and the heavens are on earth. No one. No one can say to him, what have you done? Because his hand is sovereign in the heavens and on the earth. Okay, so who do you want to trust in? The Egyptians, who are man and, and, and horse, or the sovereign God of the universe? Well, it seems pretty simple when you word it that way. Isaiah 46.10. He declares the end from the beginning. Ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. So here's what was happening, is that the fear of man was overriding their fear of God. Has that ever happened to you? I think it probably has, if you think about it. You fear a situation or a circumstance or people more than you fear God. So what you end up doing is you choose the route that gives you earthly protection rather than trusting in a sovereign God who can protect you from this person that you're so afraid of or this situation that you're so afraid of, right? You're afraid of a job. You're afraid of a circumstance. You're afraid of whatever it might be. People are terrified about everything. We're scared about everything. But you have to remember and acknowledge that the God we trust in has a sovereign hand over his creation, what would you rather trust in? A doctor to fix your body, right? Your trust is in that, or God. Now, don't get me wrong. If I break my arm, I'm going to the doctor. But ultimately, who is my trust in? My trust is in God to work through the channel of a doctor, not in the doctor himself. That makes sense, right? So um, I'm not trusting in the doctor so much as I'm trusting in the things that God has set up in this world. Now, could God miraculously heal my arm if he still wanted to? Well, sure, sure. But I'm going to go to the doctor. Absolutely. They had forgotten that God's hand rules over all, even their fiercest enemies. Sometimes we forget that too. God rules and reigns over all. What can man do to me apart from God's sovereign hand? Psalm 56, 11, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Well, you might say, well, he can kill me, actually. He can hurt me pretty bad. He can betray me. He can take me to court and sue me, right? He can break into my house and rob me. Or enter in anything. What can man do to me? But here's the idea. What can man do to me apart from the sovereign hand of God? Well, if you put it that way, nothing. In the same way, what could Satan do to Job without the sovereign hand of God? Nothing. Nothing. So where is your trust then? Where is your trust? Matthew 10, 28, last one I'll reference here. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both the soul and body in hell. That's a greater fear. Next, not only acknowledge God's sovereign hand, but also obey his perfect word. Okay, so both of these things that we've seen so far have to do with God's hand. They have to do with his word. Consult God's word of guidance, right? Trust in his hand of protection. Next, acknowledge God's sovereign hand and obey his perfect word. We have to do all of these things. We look back at... Uh, chapter 30, verse 2, it says, 
who sat down to go to Egypt without asking for my direction, who take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now, taking this from a little different angle, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, they take refuge and protection from Pharaoh. What's happening here? When they couldn't figure out on their own, they decided, well, or they thought they could figure things out on their own. They said, we don't need the counsel of God in this situation. I can take care of that one by myself. I just want to remind you here, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this is exactly what happened. They thought, I can take care of this situation all on my own. I don't need, this is a pretty basic situation. We're in a war. We need someone to help us. Here's people willing to help us. Let's get, it seemed very easy to them. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. If you obey God's word, if you submit to it humbly, and if you work at it in your life, you take the principles of the word of God and you apply those principles to your life, this is what keeps you on solid ground throughout your life. But sometimes we do fall. And in falling, God does not leave you on your own, on your face, on the ground. Because none of us is going to obey the word of God perfectly. So you might say, well, what happens then if I'm trying to seek out God? Okay, big situation. I want to seek God. I want to obey his word. I want to do everything you just said. Okay, I want to do all that. But you're not going to do it perfectly. And you're going to mess up one day. For me, it's going to be later today, probably. But we remember that when we mess up, we have a God who is merciful and gracious, and He does not leave us on, a, on our face. So we're reminded of what? God's discipline, of course, which is exactly what's happening to His rebellious what? His rebellious enemies? His rebellious children. They're still His children. They're just being rebellious. Some of them will die because of it. Some of them will just be very severely disciplined. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. Just remember what it says. For it is for discipline that you have to endure, which means that discipline is something you have to endure through because it's really difficult. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? A bad father. If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in holiness. So the purpose of discipline is holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Of course it does, sure. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To who? To those who have been trained by it, that you made a mistake yesterday, you, why, do you, why are you going to make that same mistake tomorrow? You're going to get disciplined again. I don't know, you know, God is unlike me. He is a perfect father. But let me tell you what I do to one of my children who continues to do the same thing over and over, is that their punishment increases. Do that, 
Get punished? Okay, you did it again five minutes later. Okay, your punishment's worse this time. And they did it again five minutes later again. You know that's how it works. That's what they do. Punishment increases. You continue to be disobedient to that same thing, right? So you need to be trained by your discipline so you don't keep doing that same thing over and over. But that's how we, that's how we do it, isn't it? God disciplines us. And he has mercy to us and we have that breakdown moment and we repent and we have joy in God. And in the midst of that joy, what do you do? You do it again. And God brings you back down to that place and you have sorrow and regret and you repent and then you have joy in God and then you do it again. What a great mercy of God that he has grace on us as rebellious children. What a great God that we serve who would do that. What a perfect father. But we're reminded of Romans 2, verses 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So you disobey the word of God. As a child of God, you disobey the word of God, you get disciplined. As an enemy of God, you disobey the word of God, you get wrath and fury. Children get discipline, enemies, wrath and fury. You're in one of those two places. Only by faith in Christ do you become a child of God. And you are lovingly disciplined by a father. If you do not have faith in Christ, you're an enemy of God and you get wrath and fury. From the sovereign king of the universe, by the way, it's going to be pretty bad. Let's move on, verses 4 through 9, and this is the last section of chapter 31. It says, For thus, uh, thus the Lord said to me, As a lion and a young lion growls over its prey, when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted by their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem, and he will protect it, he will deliver it, and he will spare it and rescue it. Do you get the mental image there of birds hovering, protecting, right? This is God protecting. Verse 6, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold from which your hands have sinfully made for you. Verse 8, and the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. A sword, not of man, shall devour him. He shall flee from the sword. His young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away into terror. His officers um, desert in the standard in, uh, the, the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in, in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Now, if you can remember back just a few sermons ago, we were talking about chapter 29. And in that, uh, Jerusalem was an altar, and he was setting a fire on it, and the people of Israel were going to be set on that altar and, and lit up as a sacrifice to God, a pretty bleak image, right, if you remember that. But here again, he talks about how there's a furnace in Jerusalem. Something is burning. He's going to burn something. What is he going to burn here, though? He's going to burn his enemies away that it might be pure. He's going to burn away the rebellion and the evil. He's going to protect it. How is he going to do that? What does that look like exactly? Now, who deserves to be burned up? Who deserves the fierce anger of God? Well, of course, we all do for our rebellion. But as children of God, by faith in Christ, 
We get mercy and we get grace and we get discipline. Now, I want to make a reference here to where it says, um, to where it says, uh, verse 8, the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. A sword, not of man, shall devour him. What might that mean exactly? It means exactly what it says. It means that a bunch of Assyrians are going to die without anyone having touched them. And when you know that actually happens. Um, if we look, Isaiah 37, verse 36 you can just make a little note of it. Isaiah 37, 36, it says, The angel of the Lord went out and struck down, listen to how many, 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the people of Israel rose early in the morning, and all they saw all the dead bodies. How did all those people die? The Lord did it. And did they die by the sword of man? No. The Lord did it for them. Why? To protect them. Do a rebellious people deserve protection? No. What must we do? Two things. As a, as a rebellious people, if God's rebellious children, which we are, you have to admit that's who we are today. We rebel against God. We don't trust in his word the way that we should. So what should we do? Two things here. In verse 6, we see that, chapter 31, verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted. And there it is. We know what that means. Turn to the Lord in repentance. You see it again um, in verse 15 of chapter 30. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. That word is translated in other places, repent. Isaiah 30, verse 26 the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun shall be sevenfold. Uh, if you remember that verse in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and he heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Now, I want, I'm going to read that again. Listen to what I just said. The Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Whose blow? God's blow. On what people? On his people. And who's going to heal them? God is. Do you see that? That is unbelievable, isn't it? And what is that? It's the discipline of God for his children. God inflicts a painful blow, right? God sends them to a place to where they turn to him and repent. He has mercy on them, and he binds up their brokenness. God promises that to you as his child in Christ. Thank God we have a a God that sends wounds to inflict us, that he might take us to a place of repentance and that he might heal us and repair our brokenness. That is a good thing. Now, discipline in the time always seems painful rather than pleasant. That's what the authors of Scripture tell us, Right? Yes, it seems painful. Does that mean you don't want it? I fear it. But what is the purpose of all godly discipline? Holiness. Do you want to become more like God? Do you want to be a more obedient child? Then you need to learn. And any child learns how? By discipline. If you're not receiving the discipline of God in your life, it's not because you're sinless. 
But unfortunately, you're not receiving that great mercy of God in your life right now. Sometimes discipline in itself may be that God is not sending these wounds to inflict you, to bring you down to a place. But you are remaining where you are. Listen, I've gone through periods of time in my life. You've always known that sanctification, we talked about this, is a huge process. It's up and down, up and down, up and down. But you look back over all the years, and, and it, it's steadily going up. That's, that's how it works, right? We are becoming more like Christ. But in the moment, it's ups and downs, up and down, up and down, up and down. I've gone through some plateaus in my spiritual life. And I just remember having times of saying, God, I, I, where is the brokenness for sin in my life? Why don't I feel a brokenness for my sin? I know I'm a sinner. For some reason, I'm just not very aware that I'm a sinner right now. And I don't like that. I don't like that I think I'm a good person. Because I know I'm wrong. I know that I'm wrong. I'm not a good person. No one is good. Not even one. So uh, certainly not me. I know, I know that much. So I, I pray and I ask God, send that on my life because your discipline is sweeter to me than in this plateau phase of my life where there's nothing. There's no brokenness for sin. There's no repentance. I want that. If you don't want that, you need to do some reflection. Just a couple of verses to remind you here. We're almost done. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though for now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved. Trials grieve us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in the praise and glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a good thing. Revelation 3.19 those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, it says, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You might say, but... You ever done something you knew was wrong and you were just kind of waiting on the discipline of God to come in your life? And wouldn't you know it? You don't feel it. You don't. It's, like you, it's like you almost believe in karma for a few minutes. You think, I did something wrong, so something bad's about to happen. I, di I, just, I didn't do that, so I know that something bad is coming, right? Because that's how, that's how life works, right? Uh, you do something good, you get good in. You do something bad, something bad happens to you. That's not biblical truth. That is karma, okay? That is false. All right, but... Have you ever done something and all of a sudden you realize that, oh, well, I guess I can keep doing that because nothing bad happened. And so you start to take the patience and the forbearance of God over your sin as a kindness that allows you to continue in sin rather than a kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Okay, so the first thing we do is we turn to the Lord in repentance and then what? Let's just say I'm in a bad situation that I need God's guidance. I'm in a bad situation where I'm not trusting in, in the situation. Something real bad has happened, and I need to figure this out right now. You know, your mind just flashed back to a scenario, right? It might be something you're living in right now. It might be something that has happened to you in the past. It might be something you're fearing for the future. I'm in a bad situation. 
Where do I, what do I do? Okay, I was trusting in myself to figure something out. So, I'll, okay, I'll repent of that. All right, I want to trust in God. So I repent of that. I trust in God. And now, okay, what do I do? You wait on the Lord in quietness. Isaiah 30, verses 15 and 16. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. When I was a young Christian, I heard Psalm 46, 10 and 11, and I never understood it, didn't understand it for a long time. Thought it was just a religious phrase that was thrown out. I didn't like it because it sounded fluffy to me. It didn't sound real. Okay, but Psalm 46, 10 and 11 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, our fortress. The problem that I, I had was be still and know that I am God. Okay, I thought, be still, be still. And so I, I remember um, even, a pro this was probably before I was really a Christian because I heard this, you know, and, and I remember being, you know, probably nine, ten years old and saying, be still, know that I'm God and seeing it in the church and making a joke and saying, okay, there, I did it. I, you know, I, be still and know that I'm God. Okay, I did that. I was still and I said, okay, you're God. And I just remember making ridiculous things like because it was a joke to me. It doesn't mean be still in your body. It means be still in your soul. Be still in your soul. Because you know what it means to have a restless spirit, don't you? You know, your soul is, I don't know what to do. I'm busy. I'm trying to think about all these different things that I need to do to fix my situation. And what does God call us to do? Be still and know that I'm God. What does that mean to know you're God? Okay, great. I know that you're God. Thanks for that. Now I need to fix my situation. No, know that I am God and that I am good and that I am sovereign over my creation. Any solution you might possibly need, where's it going to come from other than me? So just calm down about it and recognize that I'm in control. Be still and just know and trust that I am God. You know what? This can apply to any situation you ever go through in your entire life. God is in control. Doesn't that bring a stillness to your soul? Because who knows better? God knows better how to fix this situation than you do. You might trust in something that is not right, much like the children of Israel. Yeah, listen, well, you're our God and everything. We're going to go worship and sacrifice later, but we're also going to go to Egypt. Where was their real trust? Even though they said it with their mouth, where was their real trust? Their real trust was in Egypt. Does God know the thoughts and intentions of your heart? Well, absolutely he does, because he's God. You can't fool him. All right, last passage I'm going to read. I'll take that back, I'm reading two more. Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. The Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Blessed are all who wait for him. This is the passage I'm going to end with today. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40. It's a well-known passage, but I'm going to read a little bit beforehand. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. Listen to what it says. Remember, we're talking about a people, a children who are rebellious. 
They have not listened to the word of their father. They have not trusted in him. They have trusted in something else. But then they recognize that they were wrong and they repent. And so what do I do now? That's where we're at. And here's what Isaiah 40 verses 28 through 31 says. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That's a great God. Now listen to verse 29. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. Fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They who wait on the Lord are the ones who have spiritual strength. Again, this is not talking about you'll have strength in your body and you'll be able to run a marathon, okay? You might, but that's not what it means here. That's not the context, all right? I can't run a marathon. But it says a youth who has all the energy you can imagine, who has a nice fit body, eventually he's going to get exhausted. So who is it who has strength that endures? It's those who trust in the enduring God of the universe. He does not faint or grow weary. That God, the God we serve, never grows tired. Never. And that's the God we put our trust in. When my soul is weak, I trust in God. I trust in Him. He never, ever faints. And I do often. And my strength needs to be renewed. And how do I do that? How do I renew my strength? By trusting in the sovereign creator of this universe who's working things according to his will and his counsel. And his ways are unsearchable. His wisdom is so far beyond mine that I can rest knowing that this world is in good hands because they're in the hands of God himself. Now, you might look at the world and say, well, he's not doing a great job. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? God is working things according to his timing and his way, and who are we called to be in the midst of that? Obedient children of our Father. And when we find ourselves in the midst of rebellion, what should we do? Repent, acknowledge his word in his sovereign hand, right? And be still and wait and know that he is God. That's what we're called to be. And that is a very hard thing to do. But it is what we are called.